Well, good morning. If you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 16. So good to see everyone here today. Uh, because today is a Lord's Supper service, uh, I get the opportunity to preach uh, live and in person in both services. And so that's why I'm going early in here today. Uh, last week, and over the last several weeks, we have been talking about our Advance the Ministry offering, and we will not be focusing on that this morning, but I did want to say that many of you have already been very generous with the church, and some of that has already begun to come in. Uh, if you'd like to be a part of that, it's just an extra offering over and above what we would ordinarily do uh, to help our ministries in these last months of the year. And you can mark your giving envelope if you give in one of the boxes at the exits, or you can indicate uh, on the uh, computer if you're giving with an app or with uh, uh, the internet page uh, that this is advanced the ministry, and they'll make sure it goes to the right place. And so First and Second Samuel, we're focusing on those passages in these months, and I love the story of uh, these flawed leaders. We started with Eli and then with uh, Saul. We have focused some on Samuel, though there are not a lot of flaws in Samuel's life. Uh, but Samuel has been a transition now to David, and we'll see a number of flaws in David's life over the next few weeks, if the Lord allows. Uh, what we see today in 1 Samuel 16 is the really the introduction to David, his name has not appeared until the passage today, 1 Samuel chapter 16. Uh, this is a very familiar story, and we're going to read the verses, the scripture in a moment or two, uh, but I want to just introduce it to begin with. Uh, the prophet Samuel is directed by God to go and anoint the man who will be the future king, and we know that his name is David. Uh, he goes to the city where he is instructed to go and to the family to where he has been instructed to go. Uh, in this family, there are eight sons. Uh, seven of them are rejected by the Lord, but one of those sons by the name of David is chosen. And so the question that people ordinarily ask when they begin to read this passage of scripture and the passage that ordinarily we preachers ask when we read this uh, passage of scripture is, well, what was so special about David? What were the character qualities that made David worthy to be the next king? One man was chosen among eight sons. Why was David chosen? What was so special about him? But listen, church, we need to understand this before we jump into the scripture reading. That's not the right question. Uh, that question, what's so special about David, really misses the entire point of this passage. This is not a passage about something special in the life of David. This is a passage about something special about the Lord. And when we get to the end of this passage, the goal is not that you will say, David was a great man, and there are things about David that we need to emulate, but the goal at the end of this message and the goal of this passage of Scripture is that we would say at the end that God is a great God. And there are things about God for which we need to glorify him. 
This passage is a passage about God. Now, as we go through our study of, of David and First and Second Samuel, uh, we're often going to see some, some stories that at first glance might seem like some good moral fables to tell us maybe how we could live with more character, or, or we're going to see some stories, uh, maybe David and Goliath that we may get to next week. Uh, that we're going to view as inspirational stories for how we can do our best, make our mark. And there will be some inspiration and there will be some moral lessons perhaps to learn. But listen, church, the story of David, the historical account of David is given to us first and foremost so that we might know something about the greatness of God. And we'll see that as we go through this time. So 1 Samuel chapter 16, I just want to begin reading at the beginning. Verse 1 says, the Lord said to Samuel, Samuel is the prophet of God, the preacher, so to speak. So the Lord said to Samuel, how long are you going to mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? We've been focusing on Saul. He is the current king at this point, but Saul has failed. The fall of Saul, we've been focusing on the last four weeks. And Samuel's very upset about that. He is broken over this. And so God says, Samuel, how long are you going to be broken over this? How long are you just going to sit and mourn and grieve over what has gone on? He says, fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem because I have selected a king from his sons. So it's interesting that uh, the Lord says to Samuel, and we're going to come back to this, Samuel, I know that you're brokenhearted and that you're grieved and that you don't want to go, but you need to fill your horn with oil and go. That means you need to get ready and you need to go. Just go. Now, put a pin in that because we're going to come back to it. Verse 2 says, Samuel asked, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. And the Lord answered, take a young cow with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And then invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will let you know what you are to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate to you. And so again, Samuel is reluctant. God says, go, I'll take care of the details. Verse four, Samuel did what the Lord directed and went to Bethlehem. And when the elders of the town met him, they trembled and asked, do you come in peace? Why do you think, by the way, and I won't be able to say this in the summit service because they missed the message, but why do you think the people in the town would tremble with fear when the prophet of God showed up? They remember that just a few days before this, he had hacked Agag to death. And um, yeah, they were fearful. Verse 5, in peace, he replied, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And then he consecrated, that means he prepares spiritually, Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they arrived, Samuel said to Eliab, Certainly the Lord's anointed one is here before him. And so uh, here's Jesse and his sons. And the first one is Eliab. And he is the tallest, the biggest, 
Uh, he looks like a warrior. Uh, you could see him, imagine him sitting on the throne. And Samuel, when he saw him, said, that's got to be the guy. Well, let's see what the Lord says. Um, verse 7, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or his stature because I have rejected him. Humans do not see what the Lord sees for humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. Now, if you're going to circle a verse in this passage, that's the verse. The Lord doesn't look at things the way we look at them. The Lord's looking at the heart. Verse 8, Jesse called Abinadab and presented him to Samuel. So this is the next son. There, there are seven that have been brought to this ceremony. Verse 9, then Jesse presented uh, Shema. So I, uh, I skipped the words, but Abinadab was uh, rejected. Uh, but Samuel said, the Lord hasn't chosen this one either. Verse 10, after Jesse presented seven of his sons to him, Samuel told Jesse, the Lord hasn't chosen any of these. And Samuel asked him, are there any other sons? <laughs> now, we, we don't, you know, perhaps uh, get to see here in the scripture verses all the context here. But I imagine there was an absolute panic with Samuel. I mean, he's traveled all this ways. He said, one of your sons is going to be the next king. And they come and God says, no, 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 for all of the sons that are there. And Samuel's thinking, what am I going to do now? And so he asked really what would be a crazy question. Uh, Jesse, sir, no disrespect, but have you forgotten any of them? I mean, seven sons, maybe, maybe there's another one. You just don't remember. And so the answer, there is still the youngest and he answered, but right now he's tending the sheep. Uh, so that tells you that the youngest was somebody that nobody considered worthy to be a king. Samuel told Jesse, send for him. We won't sit down to eat until he gets here. And so Jesse sent for him. He had beautiful eyes and a healthy, handsome appearance. Now that'll confuse you uh, because you're thinking, well, turns out that this David uh, man, this last youngest son was handsome. Well, th that a different meaning in this context. Uh, handsome and what's the other word? Beautiful eyes. That's their way of saying that he was cute. Okay. So imagine you're looking for a king and the primary purpose of a king in those days was to be the warrior leader of the of the nation. So you're looking at someone, looking for someone, and you can imagine him standing there with a battle axe and, you know, a coat made out of the uh, skins of the animals. He is just killed with his bare hands, a man that could stand before all the troops and demand allegiance. And you just imagine that warrior of a guy. And so then David shows up and they say, well, he's cute. So that was not meant to be a compliment, even though it might, uh, it might sound like a compliment. It goes on to say, then the Lord said, anoint him, for he is the one. So God chose him. Verse 13, so Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David from that day forward. Then Samuel set out and went to, uh, to, to Marah. Now, I want to I dig into this uh, historical narrative for just a moment or two 
And I want to ask a me-centered question. How can we get picked? Uh, David was picked. The other seven were not. How can we get picked? But while that's a me-centered question, and you'd think the answer would be, well, I need to do this and I need to do that. The answer to the me-centered question, how can I get picked by God, is going to be a God-centered answer. If you're looking at your worship guide and you want to peep ahead to the outline, you'll notice that the four answers to the question, and we'll likely only get to three of these today, but the four answers to the question to why, how can I get picked, God is, God hates, God delights, God values. Okay, so while it's a me-centered question, and, and this is important, the, the point of the story is not about me, it's not about David, it's about God. And so we're going to see that even if you ask the question, how can I get picked? The answer is in the nature of God. As I said, my goal at the end of this is, is that we'll be more knowledgeable and we'll stand more in amazement at the glory of God than we, than we do today. So let's look at these uh, answers to the question, how to get picked. Uh, number one, God is searching for champions. God is searching for champions. That's the first thing I want you to know about God, because that explains how David was picked. God is searching for champions. If you look back at verse one, he says, I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem because I have selected for myself a king. God has selected a king. God has chosen a king. God has been looking for a king. We read in a previous chapter two or three weeks ago that God had found somebody uh, who was a man after his own heart. God was searching for a king. Now, who initiated David's rise to the throne? Was this something that was David's idea? Did David apply for the job? Did David uh, put his uh, name on indeed.com to see if perhaps he would be qualified to be the king? No, this is not something that David initiated. This is something that God initiated because God is searching for champions. And you see this throughout the Bible. I've got a whole list here. We could talk about Abraham. How was Abraham, how did Abraham become the father of the faith? Did Abraham search for God or did God search for Abraham? God searched for Abraham, if you know that story. How about Moses? Did Moses pick God or God picked Moses? God picked Moses. How about the disciples? In the New Testament, in the Gospels, did the disciples pick Jesus or did Jesus pick the disciples? How about the Apostle Paul? Do you know that story? Did Paul pick Jesus or did Jesus pick Paul? Listen, God chooses people. God is searching for champions and God still chooses people. Let me read a couple of verses uh, that aren't strongly connected, but they, they remind us of this. Second Chronicles 16, 9 says, for the eyes of the Lord roam throughout the earth to show himself strong for those who are wholeheartedly devoted to him. The eyes of the Lord are searching for a man or a woman who will allow God to work through them. He's searching. The eyes of the Lord are roaming across this room today 
and all those people who are watching online, and he is searching for a man or woman who will allow God to do something great uh, in his or her life. God calls us uh, to be a part of what he is doing. Let me talk about calling very quickly in just a couple of senses. Uh, the way we talk about it most often is being called into ministry. If you heard people talk about that, I, I believe and the Bible teaches that God calls people, specific people into ministry, into a vocational ministry sense, the calling into the ministry. I believe too that many, many more people have been called and are being called into the ministry than have, um, that have recognized that or at least have embraced it. I think our church is filled with people uh, who are not working where they ought to work and not doing what they ought to be doing because God has called you into vocational ministry. Now, there are a lot of options for that today. There was a time that that meant that you either had to preach sermons or you had to sing songs. And uh, those are two ways that people still are called into the ministry, vocational ministry. But there are a lot of ways now. People are called into Christian counseling. People are called to work with all different age groups and affinity groups. And people are called to plant churches. And people are called to support people who plant churches. And people are called to go on missions. And people are called to do ethnic work. People are called to do language work. People are called in a thousand different ways. There, there are so many options, but God is still calling people into vocational ministry. And I'll tell you that in America, right now, even in America, and this has multiplied the need a hundredfold around the world, there are not enough ministers. There are not enough youth ministers. There are not enough preachers. There are not enough uh, uh, executive, administrative ministers. There are not enough children's ministers. There aren't enough, there are not enough anything. There are not enough college professors. There are not enough scholars. There are not enough writers. There are not enough Christian counselors. And then, as I said, you go around the world and the need is greater and greater and greater. Now, why is that? Did God get behind on his... uh, and his uh, production cycle? No, people have not heard the call, have not responded to the call. God calls people, just like God called David. God calls people into vocational ministry. Sometimes, sometimes it's an unlikely call. I believe often it's an unlikely call. And because it's unlikely, and maybe because it's not... Um, uh, what people would anticipate, uh, it is unconventional, it's the word I'm looking for, uh, we just don't recognize or don't embrace it. Uh, everybody's call looks different. I was, uh, became a, uh, a Christian near the end of my junior year of high school. Uh, that was a surprise for a lot of people. And um, there was a youth group in the area uh, that was a large youth group, and they serviced a bunch of high schools in the area. And they had uh, voted in their Wednesday night worship time a year before I came to know Christ. They had voted on the least likely person in the whole area to ever become a Christian. And I won. Okay. (laughs) I didn't know it. Uh, They put my picture on the wall, and they prayed for me for a year. And God saved me. So 
my life radically changed uh, in every respect except for my career plans. Uh, I just had such a desire to be a, an engineer, computer engineer. I wanted to be as nerdy as I could in the engineering department. And I was proud of it. And um, so I went to college. I was excited about it. I think it was easy for, for me to say the Lord had gifted me in that area. I mean, maybe that's too much of a stretch. I didn't have an engineering job, but I, I went to engineering school, a full ride scholarship, and I loved every minute of it and succeeded in my classes. And it just seemed like from every human point of view that this was just how God had created me. But God gave me this holy dissatisfaction with that. And God called me in the ministry and I told people, and they were shocked. I told people, and they, well-meaning people, did everything they could to talk me out of it. And I was uncomfortable with people. I didn't like to speak. Uh, my dream was to have a, you know, a six-by-six six office with no windows and a lock on the door. And... Um, uh, but God called me in the ministry. And, and I'm going to connect this here in, in an important way. Uh, just, just wait. Uh, God has called many of you into vocational ministry. And you look at Samuel's reluctance in, um, first Sam, in uh, verse 1 of 1 Samuel 16. And I know there's a lot of reluctance. But you notice what God said to Samuel when he didn't want to go? He said... Fill your horn with oil and go. Fill your horn with oil. That referred to the preparation. If he was going to go anoint the king with oil, he needed to have some oil. But God just said, you need to go. You need to go. And listen, church, there's some of you, you just need to go. So there's a vocational call, but there's also a general call. In a sense, we've all been called into the ministry. And some will be called in a vocational sense, but but everybody's been called in the ministry and we need to find our spot. We need to find how God has called us. Now, let me deal with the general pushback, the most common pushback that people have when they think about this. And this was my pushback. The pushback is I can't, I can't do it. I've seen people who are ministers and they're doing things that I just don't think I'm cut out to do. And we have this, um, Oh, Lord, help us. We've created this whole uh, industry around helping people figure out by taking these tests, uh, their areas of competency, so that they can then look at a test result and say, the Holy Spirit wants me to do such and such. Well, you never find anything like that in Scripture. Uh, nobody is, it seems, is placed in a, in, in a, in a ministry assignment because of their aptitude. You don't find that anywhere in scripture. And so the, the reluctance is, I can't do it. And that was my reluctance. I was enjoying what I was doing. I had some success at what I was doing. Uh, the future looked bright in what I was doing. And when I thought about ministry, there wasn't anything in the ministry that, uh, that connected on a Venn diagram with anything that I thought I would be good at. 
If I would have given you a whole list of things that I thought I would be, uh, could be proficient at, and then you wrote down all the things that a minister needs to do, there wasn't any crossover at all, okay? Uh, I could read, uh, and that was about it, literacy. I guess literacy would be on both lists, but that was it. But here's what we learned from this, from this story with David. God is not looking for someone to partner with. God was not looking for a ministry expert to bring into the ministry and be his partner. God was looking for somebody who would just surrender and then God would qualify that person. Does that make sense? God's not going to call you and and put you in a ministry so that people will say for the rest of your life, wow, God's got a great person there. Wow, God's found somebody that's super gifted and talented and uh, brilliant in that. No, God wants to call you into the ministry and use you in such a way that people will say, wow, look at that person. Their God must be great because that's the only explanation for that. The truth is you can't be a good minister. I mean, there's some people that will have some skills that others don't have, and, and God will use your strengths, and God will use your weaknesses. Uh, and everybody can't do everything in ministry. Uh, I'm not going to sing, uh, Tom. Uh, we're not going to press the mercy of God that much. Um, but you can't do it. That's the point. If you could do it, then you would get the glory. God's looking for somebody who can't because he can. Let me read that verse again, 2 Chronicles 16, 9. For the eyes of the Lord roam throughout the earth to show himself strong for those who are wholeheartedly devoted to him. You notice it doesn't say God is God's roaming the earth. The eyes of the Lord are roaming the earth looking for a strong person. He doesn't say that. God's not looking for a strong person. God's looking for a person through whom he can be strong. God can call the biggest nerd at Auburn University to be a pastor of a church because God can show himself strong through anybody, maybe even more so. Uh, through the person that doesn't have the skills. God's not looking for a partner. God's looking uh, for a pedestal that he can stand upon and be strong. Now, the second thing, uh, and, and this will be controversial, uh, but that's okay. That's okay. Uh, Mark uh, Meredith handles, uh, Mark and Meredith, or Mark McClendon, uh, they handle all of the complaint uh, letters here at the church. And, and I know we have many educational specialists with Uh, Much more education than I do, so this may uh, rub people wrong. But uh, number two, God hates your high self-esteem. I bet you didn't think that would be a point today. I think one of the most disturbing developments in our culture is the focus on helping people have a higher self-esteem. I understand that many children struggle with confidence, and I understand that many adults struggle with a defeatist, pessimistic, woe-is-me attitude. And those are problems. But the cure for those struggles is not to talk somebody into embracing 
the sin of pride and self-sufficiency. In fact, I would rather you struggle with a lack of confidence than for you to embrace pride and self-sufficiency. Because if you have a lack of confidence, it will lead you to lean upon the Lord. If you have pride and self-sufficiency, it will run you away from the Lord. But we tell our kids, you're a good person, you can do anything, you're talented, smart, and strong. Nothing is impossible for you. The sky is the limit. Follow your heart. And we tell adults, you can do this. You can fix this. You can control this. You can beat this. Be strong. Conquer the world. What's the most uh, quoted Bible verse today? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Uh, What we mean is I can do all things. We don't have not through Christ. Nobody even knows what that part means, right? And the truth is, the Bible verse is not even saying I can do all things. It, it actually says I can endure, what, if you read it in context, I can endure all hardships. Uh, but that wouldn't make a very good sign, okay? But we have, we have tried to raise everybody's self-esteem. You can do anything. You can do anything. Maybe what we ought to be saying to people is your heart is wicked and deceitful and is not to be trusted. You are a selfish sinner to the core. You are not a good promise keeper. And even if you win some battles in life and accomplish some goals, all of that will be fleeting and meaningless in the end. Your only hope is the Lord. Now, what was the difference between King Saul, who is a failure, And King David, who is a success, Saul's greatness came from within. Saul was the biggest, the strongest, the leader, had the best voice. He had the the most commanding personality. David, his strength came from the Lord. We go back to verse 7. We read a moment ago, the Lord said, do not look at his appearance or his statue because I've rejected him. Uh, humans do not see what the Lord sees for humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. The word there for stature, uh, is the word Gaboa in the original, in the Hebrew, and it means tall, tall. So don't look at his appearance or his height. And you go down to verse 11, Samuel asked, are these all the sons And Jesse said, there is still the youngest, and that word youngest there in the Hebrew is ketane, and it means short. So here's what it tells us. God's not going to raise up another tall king. God's looking for a short king. See, tall is overrated. I know we've got some tall people here. But strength and competency and ability and intelligence and all those things that our world prizes and those lies often that we tell our children and others to build up their self-esteem. God's not looking to appoint those people. God's looking to appoint the short people. God's looking to appoint 
those through him, God can be great. David wasn't chosen because of his great character, intellect, or strength. David was chosen because he was weak and through him God could be strong. Let me read a couple more verses, Zechariah 4, 6. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. It is not by strength nor by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. God wants to work not by your strength, not by your might, but he wants, he wants to work through you. Psalm 20, verse 7. Some take pride in chariots and others in horses, but we will take pride in the name of the Lord our God. We're, we don't want to be great because of our resources. I don't want to accomplish something because of my strengths or my, or my education or my intelligence or even my industry. I want God to do something through me. God hates our high self-esteem. Then number three, God delights in blessing the extraordinarily ordinary. Listen, I've heard all the sermons and read all the books, not all of them, but many of them, about the hidden greatness of David. Um, I mean, I've heard, I've seen where people have taken all of the all tiny little references in here to where David was and what he was doing. And they've constructed this entire description of David that paints him as, as this person with all these hidden leadership traits. And that's not the, that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is that David was ordinary. The point of the story is God blesses ordinary. So through ordinary, God can be extraordinary. So the point is not what we have to bring to the table. The point is what God can do through us. Again, I'll read a couple of verses. Acts 4.13, when they observed, this is talking about the, the enemy of the cross. This is the Sanhedrin the Jewish leaders in the book of Acts, when they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. Now, this is an, an endorsement of being uneducated and untrained. I think you ought to be as educated and trained as you can. But here's an example of people, though they were uneducated and untrained, the people were amazed, but they were amazed because of their connection with Jesus. And that's how God wants to do it. God doesn't want you to come to this church and walk away and say, that is an amazing church. That is an amazing Sunday school teacher. That is an amazing choir and orchestra. No, God wants you to leave here and say, wow, those Ordinary people serve an amazing God at that place. So here's my, um, well, I'm out of time, but I'll, um, well, I'll keep going. We, um, I, I, I'll conclude, I'll conclude with what I promise you will be the worst sermon conclusion you've ever heard. I've written and rewritten and rewritten this this morning, and I've thoroughly ruined it. Um, so here it is. You might want to write this down. It'll be the most inspirational thing you've ever heard. 
nobody's ever asked me to speak at a graduation commencement, but here, here's what it'll be. God does not want you to be great. God does not want you to rise above your peers. God does not want you to be the hardest working, the smartest, and the most clever person. God does not want you to achieve greatness. I'm learning that lesson far too late in life. I've always been driven to succeed. I've not always been successful, uh, certainly. But I've taken it in my life pretty hard when I haven't been successful. Uh, I've taken it pretty hard even when peers in the ministry have been more successful than I have been. I've had some pride when I've been more successful than they have been. I've felt like my entire life that I needed to work harder than anybody else I knew. I've always felt like I needed to be the first person in the office and the last person to leave. I've read every motivational book um, just about that's been written in English. But I'm just now learning that tall is overrated. God does not want me to live in such a way that people will say, Noel is great. God wants me to live in such a way that people will say, God is great. God does not want me and you to aspire to greatness. He wants me and you to aspire to surrender and to trust and to humility so that he can be great. And the whole story of David, that's what it's about. Do you know who the greatest person, I was telling my Sunday school class earlier, do you know who the greatest person to ever live apart from Christ? Do you know who it was? Do you know? Don't say it out loud, but guess, who do you think it was? Well, there is an answer to the question. Uh, Jesus fingered the person. Uh, Matthew eleven eleven. Don't look, just trust me, you can look later. Uh, Jesus said, this person is the greatest man ever born of a woman. That's all the men, as far as I know. But let me tell you a little bit about the person. He didn't have any money. So financially, he failed. He didn't have a home. So, so far as security, he failed. He was hated by those people in power. So he failed with his reputation. His career imploded. It looked promising for a while, but it, it imploded. He ultimately was arrested. He broke the laws of the land. He spent his last weeks in prison wondering if everything was for naught. He was crushed with self-doubt and with a sense of failure. And then the authorities cut his head off and he died at a young age. Can you think of a more miserable failure of a life than that? His name was John the Baptist. And Jesus said, as I said, Matthew eleven eleven. by the way, what prompted this is that John the Baptist, who was in prison at the time, sent people to Jesus to say, Jesus, I've been preaching about you, but I don't know. Are you even the real thing? 
It seems like John has failed in every possible way, but Jesus said he's the greatest man born of a woman. Now, how could that be? He failed in every measurable way. Greatest man born of a woman. I'll leave you with the answer. John said in John 3.30, this was his life motto, so to speak. He must increase and I must decrease. John failed at everything except the one thing that matters. His life was a platform for the glory of God. So I challenge you, don't be great. Be surrendered. Be surrendered. Father in heaven, may we honor you by letting you shine through us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.